0: So my name is Andy. Um, I, I live in Cambridge. I've lived there for eight years with uh, my wife Becca. Uh, I've served the church in Calvary Chapel, Cambridge, uh, for about eight years. It was eight years. First in the youth ministry, uh, then as assistant pastor, now for one of the pastors at Calvary Chapel, Cambridge. Um, I also teach in a secondary school. I'm a science teacher in a secondary school in Cambridge. So essentially uh, interesting. The prayer. You know, science can only go so far, and then God. And I can, I can attest to that 100%, that, that God is, is above all, because he's the one that created all. So that's an incredible thing. And um, so as a teacher, uh, at the end of year seven, uh, what we, we do with our year sevens is we take them on a trip, a camp, and we go to Eton Vale. And I just drove past Eton Vale this morning, uh, and it reminded me so much of, of all the different times I've spent there, But I want you to picture something as we begin this morning. One of the events that these these teenagers do is is archery. And I want you to think about that target. Have that target in your mind, the archery target. How you've got circles that that slowly get smaller and smaller down to the bullseye. And I want you to think about all of the people that you know in your life. And if you think about the, the wider circle, that would be your acquaintances. Those people you know but don't really know. And as you go in and in and in, you might get to some friends. Friends you might say hello to, but you don't really know much about them, but you might count them as distant friends. You come closer in, you've got some distant relatives, maybe some cousins who who you kind of know, but don't really know. Further and further into this target, you get closer and closer to those people who you are most intimate with. So you get down to your best friends, your family members. And in that inner circle that bullseye, you might only have one person. And that could be your, your spouse, it could be your husband, it could be your wife, it could be your best friend. You know, maybe you're blessed with two people in that inner circle. People that you are completely open to. People that you can completely lay yourself bare before with no shame. People that you can be 100% honest with. And they're the people that we're most intimate with. They're the people that we're most invested in. They're the people that we're most devoted in. They're the people we're most committed to. They're the people that we love the most. And they're the people that we trust the most. If you think about how they get to be in that place, it requires a relationship built over years and years and years where you've learned to trust This one person. And so this morning, I want to think about Jesus. And is Jesus for you today in that inner circle? Is he someone that you can be completely honest with? Is he someone that you can open yourself up to with no shame or disgrace? Is he someone that you love so deeply? that you're committed to them, Him, devoted to Him, that you trust Him. And So we're going to talk about trust this morning, uh, and specifically trusting in Jesus. Now, trusting in Jesus, it is not always a simple thing. I think one of the hardest things about us trusting in Jesus is the fact that we can't physically have Him in the room with us. You can't grab a hold of his flesh. You can't have that intimate face-to-face conversation. Yes, you can pray to him. Yes, you can read his word. Yes, you can see him in his people. But you can't lay your hands upon him. I think that's one of the hardest parts of trusting Jesus. In fact, at the end of John's Gospel, as, as Jesus has been resurrected, as he's appeared to his disciples, he appears to Thomas And he says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Literally seen Jesus raised from the dead. But blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed. It's hard for us to trust in Jesus because we can't physically see him. We can't grab a hold of him. And I think if we're honest, we all struggle to some degree with trusting in Jesus. Jesus. In some area of your life right now, you are struggling, I'm sure. How do I know that? Because I am. Because as we go through this Christian journey, we are always fighting against ourselves and our perception of the world around us. So, we're going to talk about trust, and I do like definitions. And the Cambridge Dictionary is the best one to go to because it's from Cambridge. (laughs) I'm not from Cambridge originally. I'm from the north of England, but the Cambridge Dictionary comes up with this. To trust someone means to believe that someone is good. It's to believe that someone is honest. It's to believe that someone is reliable, dependable. To believe that that someone, imagine you're in a circle, that that someone will not harm you. That they're safe, they're reliable. It's to have confidence in something or to believe in someone. That's what it means to trust. And I think if we consider the Christian life and the Christian faith, there are two things that are incredibly interwoven and incredibly closely related. And that is trust and faith. Trust and faith. If we read in Hebrews chapter 11, we get this definition of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance, something you can hold on to, the substance of things hoped for, what you're looking forward to, for the evidence of things not seen. It sounds very similar to trusting in Jesus, having this faith in him. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then further down in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, it says, But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a reward of those who diligently seek him. There's this incredible link between trust and faith, and we can't talk about one without talking about the other. So we we have to trust in Jesus. That means we have to have faith in him because we can't see him. That's really important. If you think about the definition that I just read from the Cambridge Dictionary, I want to bring Jesus into that definition. So, Jesus is good. Jesus is honest. Jesus is dependable. Jesus will never harm you. Jesus will keep you safe. Jesus is reliable. Jesus is our blessed and living hope. Jesus is truth. He's not just a truth or part of the truth. He is the truth. And Jesus is someone that we can be confident in. And so if you think about your inner circle right now, because I'm very aware that there may be some people in here who when they reflect on the people they know, the friendships they have, have no one in that inner circle. No one they can be completely open to. No one that they can call a best friend. So what if you have no one else? That's where Jesus comes in. The Bible says that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the friend of the outcast and of the misfit, and that is you and that is me. He wants to be in our inner circle. He desires to be that person that we can be most open to. Two. But trust is something that, that develops over time. It's something that has to grow. And if we think about this room this morning, we are all at different stages in our relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're here at church for the first time. Maybe you just started searching. You started reading the Bible. Maybe you've, you've given your life to Christ and you're thinking, what are the next steps? And you've heard there's a baptism service next Sunday. Maybe you're so stuck in your faith and been in your faith for such a long time that you're becoming dry. You're becoming complacent. The most important question about our relationship with Jesus is this. Is it growing? Is it changing? Has it changed over the past six months 12 months or are you stuck because in order for it to grow we must be in a healthy relationship you know I've been married for for eight years this summer and we did not get married and then stopped talking to each other we didn't get married and stop spending time with each other We didn't get married and stop sharing life with one another. And that's what our relationship with Christ must be like. It must be a relationship where we spend time together, where we talk together, where we just live life together through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, because otherwise it's never going to grow. What if this morning you're listening to this and you're hearing me speak and you're actually considering... I've never had a healthy relationship like what you're talking about. What if your perspective of relationships, of intimacy, is one of harm, one of danger, one of damage, one of abuse? What if you've got no one in that circle because you trust no one? What Jesus wants to do is to come in. But we've got to open up to him, we've got to let him in, we've got to allow him in. And think about this, if we've got unhealthy relationships with people on this planet, it's incredibly damaging for us to transfer that onto our relationship with God. And just because we have had bad relationships, abusive relationships, damaging relationships here with people, doesn't mean that's how God views you. Doesn't mean that's how Jesus views you. And so this morning, the the uh, title—it's one of your ongoing series—is "God Help Me Trust in Jesus." God help me trust in Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 118. This is a uh, a long psalm, and we're not going to be going through verse by verse. We're here for a very long time. Um, this is what's called an Egypt Hallel Psalm. Uh, it's a psalm that was sung in remembrance of when God brought his people out of Egypt. And it's a psalm of praise, and it's a psalm of thanksgiving. And, and there are six of these Hallel praise songs in the book of Psalms. Psalm 113 to this final one, Psalm 118. But I want you to have this in mind as we read through, and maybe you want to read through this this verse, sorry, these verses this afternoon or this week with this in mind. These songs were sung during Passover. They were sung during Passover. Uh, And it's really interesting to think about Jesus there at the Last Supper, breaking bread, giving out the wine, sharing this meal, sharing encouragement with his disciples, and singing these songs. So he sang this song just before he would have left to go to Gethsemane. Just before he would have left to go and be betrayed, to put on trial, to be whipped, beaten, mocked, to scourged, crucified, he would have sung this psalm. Just have that in mind as, as we go through some of these passages. And what we're going to do is we're going to take seven reasons out of this psalm for why we should trust Jesus, and I'm sure you all go, seven's a lot, but it's a good biblical number. I had six, but I found a seven just for you this morning. <laughs> now, number one is this. Number one for re- reason for trusting in Jesus, he, he listens and he responds. He listens and he responds. Look how this psalm starts. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he has got good that, that O is, is just emphatic, emphatic praise. He thanks to the Lord for his good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. At the beginning of this psalm, there's this heavy emphasis on praise and worship because of God's mercy. Uh, God's mercy on on humanity is us not getting what we deserve. We can look at it like this. It is steadfast love. His never-ending, unchanging love for humanity. It's his loving kindness, which we read here is forever. And when we read that word forever, that means forever. It means indefinite. It means it's not going to run out. Consider what the scriptures say about mercy His mercies, they are new every morning. Refreshed, replenished every morning. We read here forever and ever and ever. And If you think about this question, how does God demonstrate his mercy and his love towards us? It's in verse 5. It says, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. God demonstrates his mercy and love towards us by listening to our cries, our prayers, and by responding to them. When we look at this word, distress, he, he, he is really talking about a, a terror or a fear. And I'm sure we can all relate to times where we are terrified, where we are afraid, where we are in distress. What the psalmist here is saying is that we can trust Jesus we can trust that jesus cares enough to listen to us but then he also cares enough to do something in our lives and to act accordingly i wonder do you do you believe that when we prayed this morning did you believe that god was actually listening When you pray, when you're by yourself, do you trust that God cares to actually bend his ear to listen to you? And if you do, just consider how incredible that is of all the billions of people that lived on this planet and he cares enough about you to listen, to respond and to act accordingly. Out of the distress, he takes us And he sets us upon a broad place. And we should have in mind this position of safety, this position of security. In the ESV translation, it says that he sets us free. From a position of distress, if we call out and cry out to him, he will set us free. The circumstances might not change, but the acknowledgement that he is there with us That is what should bring us a position of peace. But what it requires of us is that we pray. Who finds prayer easy? No one. Prayer is difficult. I say prayer is probably the most difficult part of the Christian life. Because when we get in the position of prayer, whether that be on our knees, on our faces, going out for a walk with a dog, in, in a drive, on the way to work, as soon as we start to pray, what happens? Everything comes into our mind. Things that aren't even important become the most important of things. We care more about the fact that if we put the washing on or not, than we do about Jesus Because as soon as we start to pray, we get distracted. And when we get distracted, we get discouraged. And when we get discouraged, we neglect to pray. And it's just this ongoing cycle. But what about the times when we are praying and we're praying faithfully, but God doesn't answer us fast enough? Has that ever happened to you? When you're praying and you you want something to happen there and then, and it just doesn't. You give God a week and he doesn't do anything. Give him two weeks, he still doesn't do anything. In Daniel, it says that when Daniel prayed, it took 21 days for the answer to come. It's patience in prayer, right? We've got to persevere and endure. What about when God's answer is not your answer? When your desires are better than God's, but his plans are way better than ours. And we think we know best when really God knows best. What about when God's answer is no? That's the hardest, right? When he just says no. But we can trust because Jesus listens and he responds. And even if he's not responding in the way we want him to, he's responding in our best interests. Number two, second reason why we can trust in Jesus is this, he is on our side. He is on our side. Verse 6 says, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I'm sure as soon as I start saying Jesus is on our side, so many of us who have been in the church for a long time, our minds will immediately go to uh, Romans chapter 8, where Paul says this in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus is for us, who could be against us? It's very easy to read. It's very easy to consider. It's very easy to think about it and dwell upon it. It's a lot harder to believe it and live it. To live like Jesus really is on your side because if we live like this with Jesus on our side then we have nothing to fear we have nothing to be worried about concerned about because the love of Jesus is a perfect love and we know his perfect love casts out all fear An important thing for us to think about here is this we must take God at his word if God says he is for us then that means he is for us. And as we do so, we'll learn to live in his ways. Paul, in Philippians, chapter 2 has something I want to bring out here. And he's, have this in mind, he's there in prison. He would have had Roman soldiers on his side. Probably chained to him. But that didn't change the fact that he knew that God was on his side. He's in these horrendous, horrific circumstances. And but he had Jesus with him, and so he could say this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. No matter the circumstance, the situation. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. That means allow no space in your life for anxiety. Allow no space for it to take root, for it to take hold. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Because we know that God's on our side, we can have this peace. We can have it, and we can live in it, and we can walk with it. got two daughters, and one's three next month, and one's one in July. And both of their births were miraculous, and miraculous for different reasons. But for Eliana, our eldest, um, as she was born, we were there in the delivery room. By God's grace, we were supposed to have one person with us. And she's a, she's a believer from our church. Somehow, another friend sneaked in with us because she was also a nurse at Edinburgh, So she's a believer. So we're all there just praying and rejoicing in Jesus. Becca gives birth to Eliana. And then she starts to lose blood. And she goes pale. She's washed out. She's lying there on the delivery room. And there was nothing to do except Pray. There was nothing that I could have done in my own strength that would have changed, impacted, or affected the situation except pray. And so we prayed. And in a situation where you should have been terrified, there was a peace. There was a palpable, real sense of the living God in that room. Because we went in there knowing that God was on our side. And what's incredible, just recently, one of my year 11 students, they, got, they were asking me questions about faith. And they asked me, have you ever experienced God? That's a wonderful question from a 15-year-old. And I got to share this story of my daughter being born. And how in that situation, which should have been catastrophic and could have been catastrophic, we knew the peace of God. We knew the presence of God. And that's, that's why we can trust him, because he is on our And if you've been through situations like that, you know that they build trust. They don't break trust. When we're in situations that are hard, that are a struggle, our trust actually grows. It doesn't diminish. And so we can trust him because he's on our side. Third reason is this, for trusting in Jesus. And this is one of my favorites. He's not like you and he's not like me. We can trust Jesus because he's not like you, because he's not like me. Verse 8 of Psalm 118 says, It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Quite often one of my prayers is this, thank you God that I am not God. But how scary is it that so many people are making themselves gods of their own lives? I did that, and it was a mess. I failed at every turn. But what we're reading here is that we are going to gain and benefit from trusting Jesus instead of trusting man. Uh, Interestingly, I don't know if you know this, and if you do, then, then it's a reminder. If you don't know this, I hope it blesses you. This is the middle verse of the entire Bible. Psalm 118, verse 8. Let's read it again. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's the middle verse of the entire Bible. And Just consider how powerful it would be if each and every one of us made that the central verse of our lives. To trust in Jesus, in God, instead of to trust in man. Who's been let down by anyone this week? I have. A couple of us. Who's been let down by someone in the past couple of weeks, months, years? We've all been let down by people. If you haven't, you will be at some point. I'm sorry. I even know that that will happen because I let people down as well. I'm sure you do. We let people down. We're let down by people. We're betrayed. Often we're rejected, ridiculed, mocked, disappointed, hurt, put down, maybe even persecuted. I remember talking to a year 11 student. They just left school this week to do their exams. And she came into my lesson and she was in tears. And I sat down with her and we had a conversation. And she just said something to me. She said, people suck. I said, that's true. You're going to get let down. What about people in authority? Verse 9 says, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. What about your bosses at work? Have they ever let you down? What about the government? The representatives of the people, have they ever let you down? This one might be closer to home, but what about people in church leadership? Have they ever let you down? They're still people. What about Jesus? Jesus? Fully God, yet fully man. And the fully man part of God is perfect. Jesus is flawless. He's without fault. He's without sin. For 33 years he walked on this earth and he never once dropped down below the standard of God. Never once did Jesus let someone down. That's why it's better to trust in the Lord than in people. Because he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to drop you, put you to the side, tell you you're not worth it. He is for you. That's why we can trust in him. He is someone that we can fully depend upon. Fourth reason why we can trust in Jesus is this. He is my help. Reading from verse 10. All nations surrounding me, But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall. But the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. And he, he has become my salvation. Like, what a wonderful illustration, what a wonderful picture that we can read of in these four verses. Surrounded by enemies on every single side. Enemies of all nations. Everywhere you look, there's someone who is against you. Encircling you, closing in, pushing back against you. Seeking your destruction. Sounds like being a Christian. We're in this world, and we're not of this world. So the world sees us as being different, distinctly different, a peculiar people, and it comes against us. But it only comes against us when we stand upon the Word of God. It only comes against us when we're standing upon our God given convictions. But the Lord helped me. In the midst of all of these enemies, it's it's God that is our help. Because the Christian life's not an easy one, it's not straightforward, it's not simple. We're all going to face persecution of some kind. I've been laughed at quite often by students at school for my faith. We're going to face it. We're going to suffer on this earth. We're going to go through pain. We're going to go through loss. We're going to go through grief. We're going to face isolation. We're going to face rejection. We're going to face loneliness. These things are going to come upon all of us because that is the world that we live in, the fallen, broken world. And the enemy will look at the believer, Satan will look at us as we stand upon the word of God, and he will be like the enemies that surround us. He will encircle us. He will press in on us. And yet in the midst of all of this, whatever circumstances you find yourselves in this morning, whatever situation you're going through, in the midst of that, Jesus is our help. He's the one that we can look to as a support. He's the one that we can look to as a way out. Jesus is our strength. He's the one that we need to draw from. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Not, not through myself, but through him. And he becomes our song. You know, before I was a believer in Jesus, I was not a happy person. At 18... At university, just going out, drinking, partying, looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, but finding nothing but a bad head and not many friends. But in Jesus, we find our song, our joy, our happiness, our completeness, our fulfillment in Him and in Him alone. And look what it says here it says, He has become my salvation. He's become my deliverer in the midst of all these enemies surrounding me, pressing in. He is the one who delivers us. Man can't save you. Authority figures can't save you. Your pastor can't save you. You can't save yourself. Culture can't. Religion can't. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus is our deliverer. He's the only one that can bring us out of the midst of our enemies and set us in a place of victory. So we can trust him because he is our help. Number five. Fifth reason why we can trust Jesus is this. He disciplines us. Saw some grimaces when I said the word discipline. Tell me if you've got a Bible to Proverbs chapter 3. It's funny, in churches, there are some words that just draw a response and discipline is is certainly one of those words. Proverbs chapter 3. There's something to think about here. My son, verse 11, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves he corrects, just as the Father, of the Son, in whom he delights. Do you like being told what to do? No. I don't like being told what to do. My students certainly don't always like being told what to do. There's some doctors in the room. I'm sure your patients don't always like to do what you tell them to do, do you like being corrected? Men, do you like your wife correcting you? Women, do you like your husband's correcting you? Do you like being told off? Do you like being criticized? No. Being criticized isn't always a negative, by the way. None of us, though, like to be disciplined. But it's not a part of the Christian faith we can just park to one side because we dislike the thought of it. We don't want discipline, and we don't invite discipline into our lives. But the very fact that God disciplines us is, is evidence and proof of the fact that we can trust him. His discipline is a demonstration of his love. His discipline is a demonstration of his love. It, we get a wonderful picture of this in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, verse 5 of Hebrews 12 says, And you've forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement, which speaks to you as sons, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? If I never told off my three-year-old daughter, if I never corrected her, who'd be ruling my house? Not me. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. And that's a hard verse to read. Because what the author here is saying is this. If you are not under God's discipline, then are you really a child of God? It's not me saying it, it's the word of God saying it. If you're not under his correction and training, then are you a child of God? Something for you to consider and pray about. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us, as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, says so "Is a good thing here from discipline, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A key principle of biblical discipline is this. It's coming from a loving, kind, compassionate heart. It's not coming from a dictator. It's not coming from someone who wants to dominate your life. It's coming from a God who loves you infinitely and cares for you deeply. Secondly, it's not going to harm us, but it might hurt us. The discipline might hurt us in the moment, but in the long run, it's for our good, it's for our benefit. And another way to look at this is this. Discipline is not punishment. When God is disciplining you, it's not him removing you and putting you on the naughty step or in the cot or wherever you put your kids when they were younger or as they are now. It's not that. It is instead correction. It's a training. If you remember the answer to the question, what's God's will for your life? God's will for your life is your sanctification and that's a big word isn't it sanctification but really think about it like this sanctification is removing you out of you and replacing it with Jesus sanctification is the process of the world not seeing you anymore but seeing Christ the hope of glory living in you and that's the process of the Christian life you were saved yes but you're still being saved from yourself And as that's happening, as the Holy Spirit who dwells in us is teaching us, we need to remember that he is a kind, compassionate teacher. Through this process of sanctification, Jesus does not give you your essay back with red circles everywhere and big crosses through all of your errors and say, go away and fix it. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. What he does is this, he sits beside us and he takes us through every single mistake, every single error, step by step, and he lovingly changes us. He lovingly molds us. And you know what? Some of us make the same mistake time and time again. And he still takes us through slowly, kindly, compassionately. Because of his deep love for us. That's what godly discipline is all about. It's about changing us to be in the image of Jesus Christ. And that's why we can trust him. Because he loves us enough to discipline us. Reason number six that we can trust in Jesus is this. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the chief cornerstone. Back in Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing is marvelous in our eyes. If you ever have a building project, the cornerstone is is the thing that you lay down first. It's a stone that you put down first and then you align everything else with and build everything else upon. If we consider Jesus as our cornerstone, it means that he is our bedrock he is our foundation. He is our centerpiece. And it's the cornerstone of our lives. He is the one, he is the one that holds everything else up. If you turn me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, that would be fantastic. Ephesians chapter 2. Because not only is our chief cornerstone personally and privately, he is the chief cornerstone of the church. Ephesians 2, 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's one of the things that we're not just a small collection of people. We are a body, we are a family of heirs and saints of Jesus Christ. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What we need to do is we need to get Jesus in the right place. We need to make him centerpiece of our lives. He he must be the cornerstone, privately but, but corporately as a church. Everything must be built off of him. Too many churches are conforming to culture instead of conforming to Christ. And we need to come back to this idea of building everything off the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. And If the things of this world don't match up to the word of God, we say no. We don't allow them to take root. We don't allow them to take a hold in God's holy church. All of us, I'm sure, have tried to build our lives on something other than Jesus. All of us, I'm sure, have realized that as we do that, we stumble, we fall, and we eventually fail. I was reading recently the parable of the, of the, two, the two men who built their houses. The foolish man who built his house upon the sand that just got swept away. But but the wise man who built his house upon the rock, upon the teachings of Jesus, he is the one that will remain. Just as I was putting this together, even this morning, I just want to encourage you men. I want to encourage the men. If you're a husband, if you're a father, it's your responsibility, it is your spiritual role to make Jesus Christ the centerpiece in your home. You are the one. Everything in your life as a family, as a married couple, must revolve around Jesus. And if you're not married, then you still must make Jesus the centerpiece of your lives. If you're living in shared accommodation, make him the centerpiece of your room. If you're in student flats, the centerpiece of your room. Because that's going to impact not just you, but the people around you. Because if we make him the centerpiece... He will hold you up and he will hold everything together. Number seven. Nearly there. Seventh reason why we can trust in Jesus is this He is our Redeemer. Verse 25 Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice of cause to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. You know, reading this passage, it it should cast our minds back to, to Palm Sunday, to the triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This, this entry of Jesus into Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week. As he's there on a colt riding down into Jerusalem, we read in Luke chapter 21, I think, that he starts to weep. He starts to weep because of the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come. He starts to weep because of the people that were lost they would miss his appearance as Messiah. But for the first time on, on this day, Palm Sunday, Jesus in his ministry would allow something he never allowed before. He would allow the public recognition of who he was. King. Messiah. The anointed one. The one who is to come to save. And the crowds, they worshipped him. They threw down the, the palm leaves, the branches, and they said, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now. And in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 11, we have this interesting verse, this interesting picture of what Jesus does as he arrives into Jerusalem. Now, it's customary in that week that, that the Jewish people would take their sacrifice, the lamb, to be to looked at to check that it was spotless, to check that it was, it was good. And what we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 11, is this. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he goes straight to the temple. When he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus, in all humility, comes into Jerusalem. He goes straight to the temple, and what does he do? He pre- presents himself as the Lamb of God, To take away the sins of the world. Perfect, spotless, blameless, and righteous. He presents himself as the sacrifice. The sacrifice. The light of the world has come. He's come to overcome the darkness of this world. But in order for your sin and for your shame to be removed from you, there was a deep price that had to be paid. And that was Jesus Christ upon the cross at Calvary. His blood spilt, his body broken. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, through his body broken. And so the final reason why we can trust Jesus is this. We can trust Jesus because of what he has done for us. He gave everything for you that you might be set free, that you might have life and life eternal. You know, time after time, Jesus has demonstrated his love to you in your life. Whilst we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Before there ever was a world, he knew the story and he knew your story and he died for you. You know, Jesus is is one who is listening to us. And he's acting on our behalf. Jesus is one that is forever on our side. Jesus, praise God, is not like you and he's not like me. He's our help. He's our loving, disciplining saviour. He's our chief cornerstone. He is our redeemer. Ultimately, we can trust Jesus because he is good. There is no one good and never has been anyone good, never will be anyone good but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, going back to what I said at the beginning, we need to get to the point where we allow Jesus into our bullseye, into our inner circle. And if he is not there for you today, then today is the day. If you're here and and he's distant from you, invite him in. If you yourself have created barriers and blockages, you can trust him. He can give you seven reasons why and more besides. But if you haven't let him into that personal, private space, I want to pray for you this morning. Because we can trust in Jesus. So can we all bow our heads and close our eyes?